today on CityCast Pittsburgh. Something a little different for a Friday. A lot of the world all this week has been sort of obsessed with the rescue efforts for the submersible that went missing on its descent to the Titanic shipwreck. It's all really sad. And a big part of the problem was how this sub and others like it communicate with would-be supporters above water. And it turns out a professor here in Pittsburgh has been working on a way to solve that. And he's tested it from the ocean floor. Almost exactly a year ago, CMU's Dr. Alex Weibel was on that exact same submersible, now in pieces beside its destination, the Titanic. A production note, we spoke to Dr. Weibel just before the news broke that the sub had been found. It's Friday, June 23rd. I'm Megan Harris, and here's what Pittsburgh's talking about. What has it been like for you this week? You know, you were on this exact same sub. How are you feeling? Well, it's, of course, terrible news. And so you're trying to do your job while you're in your mind. You're worrying about your friends. And it stands to reason that something terrible must have happened. Did it feel unsafe to you when you tested your technology there last year? Well, it's clear that it's riskier than than watching TV in the afternoon, right? So, but it is on the other side, they have put a lot of thought in it, in my opinion. There was thoughtful design that went into it. That The boat has uh, redundancies. Uh, if something bad were to happen, they have three different ways of uh, floating it again so that it naturally is, uh, uh, rises to the surface again. On the other side, it is novel technology. It's on carbon fibers, the hull of the uh, boat. And this was pressure tested by NASA. Uh, but, um, you know, it is novel technology on the submarine. Usually they have been built by steel or titanium. And this time they built it with carbon fiber. And they have actually also sensors to test that the fibers are uh, in good shape. I mean, it is a, a amazing challenging task to go to, uh, you know, 13,000 feet depths and have 400 times the pressure on the surface push on, on a submarine. Yeah. And then also, it's not like you have a lifeboat that you can climb into down there. So the, the options are limited uh, inherently in doing an expedition like this. Yeah. I mean, I feel like so many of us have been absorbing the news and when something does go wrong, um, you know, whether it, I know we don't know exactly what it was that happened, but there's a lot of criticism of design, of uh, technologies, of any safeguards that maybe weren't chosen. Um, how does all of that hit you, both, you know, your work as a researcher and also someone who's been a passenger? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit annoying because, you know, uh, all kinds of uh, uh, armchair warriors then you know, know everything better after the fact, right? Why yeah. haven't they broken up the, the these expeditions were done for uh, two, three years or several years already, all successful, and then everyone is happy. But now, of course, that something happens. So you didn't feel in the moment like you were risking your life to do this? 
Well, you everyone is aware of the risks, and you sign waivers, of course. And you, I heard uh, someone say that death is mentioned three times on the first page of the waiver. I know, um, but you, you know, on, on your airline flight, it says that probably. I know, I know. In the fine print, you know, <laughs> and uh, and any any such activity, you go bungee jumping or you go in uh, a cruise ship or something. All of this will be said as well. But, of course, everyone also understands that the risks are higher here for the reasons I mentioned. You're in the middle of the ocean. Um, you know, your backup options are much more limited. You know, my before I went, my sister asked me, is there a second ship that could, you know, bring you up if something goes wrong? <laughs> you know, and I said, no, not at that depth, right? Uh, and you basically have to accept those risks if you go on an expedition like this. Um, yeah. It's age of the beast. Now, people ask, why do you do stuff like that, you know? And the answer is really, you know, do people have a death wish or something like this? It's not the case. The people who are either engaging in research like this or do this uh, as explorers generally are actually the opposite. They, they tend to be uh, entrepreneurs, they tend to be actually people who enjoy life more like anyone else. And they're just so anxious to learn things about the world and experience the utter limits of our planet, that uh, they're actually more the joyful kind and not a, not a gloomy type, right? And I'm betting they're much more resourced and wealthy than a lot of us do. Um, so, you know, you've made the decision to go. How did you feel when you took off? I did not experience it as apprehension or fear at that moment. You have made that decision already, right? And now you're inside and it's more the anticipation, the adrenaline, the excitement of doing this. And uh, so people go on this journey. Now, it's of course not for the faint of heart and claustrophobic people, you know, all... It looks uh, so small in photos. Yeah. Did it feel that way in the moment? Yeah, it is. But you have five people sitting essentially uh, on the floor of this uh, boat it's not like an MRI machine, you know. I find uh, find MRI machines claustrophobic, but uh, this is more like a minivan. Yeah, you sit in a minivan, and it's like an elevator. It goes down, and then during the ride down, you listen to music and you tell stories and you you chat with your uh, your fellow participants, and uh, and then when it gets close to the uh, ocean floor, then obviously everyone tenses up and. Uh, but mostly in excitement, you know, we're approaching the legendary wreck and you you get closer to it. And inside, people take pictures, of course. There's a small porthole in the front, so you can peek out and see see uh, the ship. We were at the stern of the ship, which uh, if you have seen these graphic animations of the Titanic sinking, uh, it, the ship broke apart and the front went like a torpedo forward and it's fairly well uh, still in shape, while the tail broke off and essentially spiraled down. And during the spiral down, all the kinds of sides blew off and ripped off so so that at the bottom there's this debris field of many different um, uh, metal pieces that are on the floor. So uh, when you're in a submarine down there, it's actually dangerous because you know, the metal pieces can, people can get entangled and so on. And you mentioned that that happened to this crew one other time before? Not to that submarine, but it was a different submarine. Okay. Where they got stuck 
back under the propeller of the Titanic. This is, you know, and oh, uh, that sounds horrific. Yes, and in fact, one of the I watched an interview of one of the participants in that, uh, actually a journalist, and he says he was terrified. You know. The show today is brought to you by an incredible local resource, AIDS Free Pittsburgh, and their pledge to end the HIV AIDS epidemic in Allegheny County by 2030. If that is a cause that is close to your heart, make sure you're around for their biggest event of the summer, the sixth annual Too Hot for July. It is a party, but it is also a chance to get confidential HIV and STI testing for free, plus info on the incredible preventative medicines we have now to keep yins happy, healthy, and feeling your most confident out on the town. So come on out to Allegheny Commons East Park on Thursday, May 30th. Yes, July is in the name, but the event is in May. Don't get confused. May 30th from 4 to 10 p.m. There will be DJ sets, a health fair and marketplace, a ballroom-inspired dance battle, cash bar, food trucks, and more. Plus, a performance by Tony Award winner Alex Newell, a.k.a. Unique, from Gleek. This is all thanks to True Tea Pittsburgh and so many folks doing the good work out here in the community. So do not miss out. Learn more at TooHotForJuly.com. Well, so, you know, you went on your trip, not just for pleasure, for work. Um, I feel like such a big part of this conversation has been the lack of communication that these folks have with folks on the surface. Can you explain a little bit about the challenge of getting a message from 13,000 feet below to the surface um, and what you were trying to do with your research for CMU and others? Yeah, and that's what uh, combines my work with with this challenge of going in such a deep dive because um communication under the water is is problematic you can't send a radio signal uh because of the salt water and that means everything has to go by sonar the sonar is very low bandwidth so um most of the time what people do is then send text messages so in the in the submarine there was no audio communication possible to the surface you have to send the text messages right it's wild to me that a text message will send from that depth. How does that work? Through sonar, they convert that into acoustic signal, basically, since it's not transmitted by radio. It's essentially like a sonar blip that you're sending, a sonar acoustic signal. And since water does transmit uh, audio sounds well, uh, it's a sonar signal that goes to the surface, but it's very low bandwidth, so you can only only send character messages, text messages, effectively, and uh, that's what they normally do. So they send, "Oh, we are now here, we're at that depth," and then the surface responds back and said, "You know, because they know the GPS positions, so they can actually send back the the position of the sub to the sub, and uh, then essentially communicate that way." And that's what went wrong with this, is that those texts no longer went through? Yeah, they suddenly stopped getting communication, but that could mean, mean anything. It could, it could have meant that their communication equipment failed. It could have meant that uh, all electric failed on board. It could have meant that the sub imploded, right? It could mean many things. Yeah. Well, so you were testing your technology. Can you explain it as simply as you're able 
So we have been working for many decades on this problem of translating spoken language, right? To try to build systems that allow you to do automatic simultaneous interpretation in other languages, right? So that if if I were to speak German to you, you would get subtitles in English and vice versa. Now, our latest version of that system is we can also do dubbing, meaning we can uh, take the video of a person, translate what they say into the other language, and then synth resynthesize the audio of what they said in the other language, but with their voice. And then we create a video where, where it's moving lip synchronously. So I could make a video of you speaking, so Japanese, uh, and uh, you would know the difference because the lips move in Japanese and the voice sounds like you, but the output is Japanese speech, right? Um, so we've developed this and came out with this in 21 uh, as a first demonstration. And so when I met in Seattle, the CEO of OceanGate, they explained this problem with communication to me. And I said, well, we can actually build a system that would get you a video conference from, from below just by recognizing the speech at the bottom, turning it into text, sending it via text message to the surface. And at the surface, we can reconstruct a, a video of me and Stockton Rush uh, saying whatever we are saying at the uh, ocean floor. And um, so uh, we built that, we tested it, we made it smaller so that it would run on a laptop we could go uh, put on board of the submarine. And uh, so we went and uh, tested it last summer. And that's how I got to ride down to the Titanic and have this amazing experience. But at the same time, I'm also test this technology. You mentioned Stockton Rush. That's the CEO of OceanGate who owns this submersible that's missing. Um, how did you get linked up with he and OceanGate and, and talk to them about what they were using at the time and how to test your own system? Yeah. So since we're living in Seattle for private reasons, I mean, I'm Carnegie Mellon uh, uh, professor and also professor in Germany, but family-wise, we actually live in Seattle. And so when I was at home, you know, I was curious about the Titanic. And then I found out there's this company that they were in Seattle in Everett, right around the corner. So I decided to give them, a, uh, to visit them. And this is where I learned this communication problem that, uh, submarines have. And uh, so we were thinking about it, saying, hey, how's about we actually try out a new technology that could potentially make that simpler? And so I befriended their team and their uh, their technical team. And, um, and then we spent a half year designing and building that system and collecting data in a smaller submarine and putting it all together for a mission in the summer. You know, I guess I had the impression, as so often is the case, that maybe this technology was developed in isolation and then you found an application. This is the reverse. You found this company, figured out a challenge they had and made the technology for them. Yes, of course, we've been wor working for, for a long time on the components, speech recognition, machine translation. Yeah, of course. Generation and so on. But this particular combination of components you know, we had never really considered because in our normal projects, we're translating between languages. In this case, the problem isn't translation, it's transmission, right? Okay. And so we applied that to this problem. 
So so your your technology did not get picked up and adapted for that in regular use? The thing is, it's you're in a such stressful and high-risk situation, as we clearly know. So you don't want to somehow replace your trusted text system. So as a default, they, they continued with the text messaging that they've done all along, right? And so we just got to try it out uh, once, but it wasn't really, it's not a product, right? It's not something that we could now routinely put in. And that would have taken really a lot more substantial testing and routine uh, experiments, et cetera, because you're putting this in a very high-risk environment. Uh, so you don't do that lightheartedly. Yeah. Do you wish that they had your technology now? Would it have made a difference? Could it? Yeah, that's the big question. Of course, if they had the real problem with the sub, it would, I don't know, maybe it would have allowed to get at least a quick last message through. Not sure. If it's just the communication equipment and explaining what happened, maybe it would have helped. If it's uh, electric that totally failed, um, then it's depending on the same transmission lines, right? So it might not have helped in that case. Mm -hmm. I mean, you do have to have a, a working submarine and you still do have to have electric and so forth, right? And yeah. uh, so perhaps it would have helped, but uh, by and large, I think um, it was, I, I fear that the problem was a different one. Yeah. And I know you said that a couple of these folks were friends of yours. Have you been able to be in touch with families or, you know, colleagues or anything like that? Uh, the two people that I know personally is the CEO himself who's been driving the submarine. So he is on board of that submarine, of this dive. Uh, and I have gotten to know him and his wife. And they had, in, in fact, invited me again to join a upcoming dive in uh, in the winter uh, to again make prog further progress with our communication device and and so it's just horrible to th to think about all of this uh, taking this turn uh, the other gentleman is a wonderful expert on Titanic Mr. P.H. Nojolet uh, Pierre-Henri a Frenchman uh, who has done 35 dives to the Titanic already so he's a very seasoned hand at this he knows every crook nook and cranny there of the Titanic and is extremely uh, expert on it and can explain it. Uh, he's also a submarine pilot. So in one of the uh, missions, he was actually uh, moving the uh, submarine uh, gingerly around the bow, you know, the famous where all the, you know, the uh, Leonardo DiCaprio corner of the, of the of ship course, uh, yeah. in the front. Uh, yeah. So he's on that too. And again, uh, still hope for a miracle, I'm, I uh, say, but uh, at this point it looks grim, Yeah, unfortunately. Well, Dr. Reibel, I really appreciate you sharing your expertise and, and knowledge about this technology and also this experience with us. We're very grateful. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Some more news before you go. The Smithfield Street Shelter downtown is officially closed. 
New temporary housing called Community Place is opening in Homewood, but unlike the Smithfield one, it's more like transitional housing than a real congregate spot. And all the other shelters are at capacity. Public Source has a great piece about the five-hour-long back-and-forth that county council had with advocates last week. And the one big takeaway seems to be that downtown is going to need a lot more public restrooms this summer. There's also now a motion urging the county executive to look into using the old VA hospital in Highland Park as a temporary or permanent shelter. And we'll leave you with some good news. It's berry picking season in Pittsburgh. You can snag your own strawberries, flowers, and lavender at Triple B Farms in Monongahela, and starting today, blueberries too. They're $18 per basket, which holds about two quarts. And for more fun, you can head out to Freedom Farms in Butler for their berry festival tomorrow and Sunday. That's all for today here on CityCast Pittsburgh. Our music is by Benji. Mallory Falk is the lead producer. Francesca DeBecco writes our newsletter. And Maria Carter is our audio producer. I'm your host, Megan Harris. We'll be back on Monday with more news from around the city. Talk to you soon. We'll tell CityCast that they need to upgrade our Zoom account. Yeah. <laughs>